The exceptional beauty and miraculous inerrancy, the profound wisdom and amazing benefits in the Word of God can never be duplicated. It is the mind of God, and it is an ever-expanding revelation. The expansion never negates the original revelation, but builds masterfully upon it. I am awestruck daily by this marvel as I personally search the Scriptures with my ear bowed down. Proverbs 22:17. Bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. God said, man said, is not interested in simply bringing new and unusual things to you, but rather to confirm the old and eternally established things. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, this is the way, walk ye in it. It is true that staggering ideas are offered on this digital platform. Even ideas carnal men find fantastical, but be assured, they are the unabridged truth. These examples offered are simply a confirmation of the old and established Word of God, yes, miracles, and all, especially miracles. The magnificence of this Holy Bible found in the majority text is no surprise to the blood-bought, for they read Revelation 19.13, where it is written of Christ, and His name is called the Word of God. When one approaches the Word of God with ear bowed down, the experience transcends printer's ink and paper, and he or she is ushered into the very presence of God that's found in the mind of Christ. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The marvels of this beautiful book are only revealed to the born again, those of childlike faith. To all others, it is closed. Will today be the day you are born again, born a very real, datable, and second time, this time of the Spirit of God? Today the beautiful book will become the living Word of God, not printer's ink and paper. Today all your sin and shame will be fully expunged. Today all of Satan's damnable bondages will be broken, and I mean every single one. Today even your darkest day will turn bright. Follow me in this simple prompt. Here we go. Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Genesis twenty-five, twenty-five, And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. God said, 1 Samuel 18, verse 25, And Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, the king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. God said, Genesis 6, verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. Man said, the Bible is not the absolute truth because there is no absolute truth. Everybody knows that. Buzz off, Bible thumpers. Now the record. I need to know it's true. Everything depends on it. I need to know. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature 959 that will once again prove the absolute inerrancy of God's holy Bible. 
All of these power-packed features are archived here in text and streaming audio for your edification and as ammunition in the battle for the souls of men. Every Thursday eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for coming. May God's face shine upon you and yours with light and truth. This is installment 39 in the Jot and Tittle series, where in rapid fashion we offer one marvelous God-proof after another. Remember, when your absolutes are absolutely absolute, everything changes. Prepare for God-proofs 284 to 289. God-proof 284, Genesis 25, 20 through 26. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's hill, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. Did it ever seem strange to you that the Scriptures speak of Esau, the son of Isaac, and Rachel, the brother of Jacob, who would become Israel, as it does in Genesis twenty-five, twenty through 26? They are spoken of again in Genesis 27, 15, and 16, and verses 21 through 23. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. The following paragraph is found in David Downs' book, Unveiling the Kings of Israel. Twenty years went by before Rebekah bore any children, when she gave birth to twin boys in Genesis 25:20 20 through 26. The firstborn excuse me, was Esau, who was born with an uncommon medical condition, called hypertrichosis. Prolific hair grows all over the face and body. His skin was also very red, so that he was also known as Edom, the Hebrew word for red. His descendants were known as the Edomites, who later occupied Petra. God said proof. 285, 1 Samuel, chapter 18, 25 through 27. And Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, 
and slew of the Philistines two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. The foreskin is the extending skin covering the male reproductive member of those who are not circumcised. Does this account in the scriptures strain credulity? Quoting again from Unveiling the Kings of Israel, David's victory did not bring the expected approbation from Saul. David led his group of soldiers in successful raids on Philistine garrisons and became popular with the people of Israel, so much so that the maiden sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. When this came to Saul's ear, it did not go down well with him, and he wanted to kill David. This would not have been acceptable to the Israelites, so Saul hit upon a subtle plan. He offered his daughter in marriage to David, but required a dowry of 100 Philistine foreskins. Saul secretly hoped that in the process, David would lose his life, but the plan did not work. David was highly successful and killed 200 Philistines and brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king. This may seem rather crude to Western readers, but it was common practice in those days. No male would part with that part of his anatomy, so as long as they live, as long as they live. So the presentation of these emblems guaranteed that the men had been killed. On the walls of of Medinet Habu in Egypt, scribes can be seen counting out these objects and placing them in a pile. End of quote. God's word is true in every detail. God proof 286 Genesis 7, 18 through 23. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man." All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. All of the sea creatures did not die, but billions upon billions did, which is evidenced in the fossil record found on dry land, even in deserts, and even, imagine, found on every mountain peak in the world. Unbelieving scientists have a difficult, even impossible time explaining these phenomena. When you approach life in unbelief, everything is upside down. In this place, good becomes evil and evil becomes good. The headline in the July 6th and 20, 2019 issue of Science News reads, Fossil Captures an Ancient School of Swimming Fish, excerpts follow. Fossilized fish caught mid-swim give a rare glimpse into extinct animal behavior and suggest swimming in schools arose around 50 million years ago. It's unclear what killed the fish. But a sand dune collapse, for example, could have buried them in place. The orientation of the 257 extinct thimble-sized fish called Erasmatopetrus levatus suggests that they coordinated their motion similarly to fishing groups today. Fish are repelled from neighbors to avoid collisions, 
but tracked with farther away fish to stick with the group, researchers report, in the May 22 proceedings of the Royal Society B. Through collective behavior, such as a bird flocking or insect swarming, uh, likely evolved long ago, there has been scant evidence in extinct species. This fossil, housed in a Japanese museum, came from the sediments in the Green River Formation in the western United States, and the quote, 50 million years ago? Not hardly. Tried just under 4,400 years ago as a result of, of course, Noah's Ark and the global flood. God proof number 287, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The following paragraphs are from Grant Jeffrey's book, The Next World War. The book of Exodus describes the detailed instructions that God gave Moses regarding the worship vessels to be used in the tabernacle. In addition, the Lord commanded Moses to gather five special ingredients that would combine into the oil of anointing, which was to be used to anoint the tabernacle, Aaron the high priest, and the sacred objects of worship. After being used over many centuries in the tabernacle and later in the first and second temples, the oil of anointing disappeared when the Romans destroyed the second temple. One of the five ingredients of this sacred oil is described in the Bible as sweet cinnamon. When the Roman armies devastated the land of Israel in A.D. 70, the only two groves where sweet cinnamon oil was cultivated were destroyed. Without that key ingredient, it would be impossible to reconstitute the oil of anointing. This oil is needed not only to anoint the high priest and the temple vessels, but also to anoint the Messiah when he appears. Daniel, in his prophecy of the 70 weeks, predicted that the ushering in of the kingdom of God would include the anointing of the Most Holy, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. The word Messiah, Christos in Greek, means the anointed. It is important to note that Jesus of Nazareth was never anointed with the sacred oil during his life on earth. Daniel wrote, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The problem is that with the loss of one of the key ingredients, it would be impossible to reconstitute the sacred oil. However, a remarkable manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls was discovered in 1952. Although all of the thousands of other Dead Sea Scrolls were made of papyrus or leather, one scroll was made of copper. This remarkable scroll contained a detailed list of 64 places where treasures of the second temple were buried by Essene priests to keep them out of the hands of the invading Roman soldiers. Following the detailed topographical instructions found in the Copper Seal, a group of archaeologists in 1988 discovered a cave in the Judean wilderness that contained a clay jar filled with congeed oil. It has been determined to be the long-lost Sheman Afarsimon, oil of anointing. This team found the uh, found uh, excuse me. This team from the Vendel Jones Research Institutes 
and consortium with the Hebrew University, discovered the oil-filled jar buried in a pit in Cave 13 of the Dead Sea Caves. The Talmud declares that a single drop of this special oil will turn water white, and this was confirmed by investigators. In addition, extensive testing by the Pharmaceutical Department of Hebrew University established that the oil dated from the first century. The rediscovery of the oil of anointing and its possession by the two chief rabbis of Israel makes it possible for Daniel's prophecy of the anointing of the Messiah finally to be fulfilled. It is one of the most significant prophetic developments that points to the imminent coming of the Messiah. End of quote. In the God Said, Man Said, 21 Signs of Doomsday series, you'll find a plethora of ominous signs pointing to a soon-coming return of Jesus Christ for His church in the clouds, the great battle of Armageddon, and the end of the world as we know it, which will soon follow. Prepare to meet your God. God Proof number 288, Job chapter 12, 7-9. through 9. But ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these, that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Only God could create a woodpecker. The following expose on the woodpecker was written by biochemist Dr. Dwayne Gish, who while here on the earth was known by many as the foremost creationist debater in the world. I personally attended one of those debates, and he certainly lived up to the claim. Gish writes, Some people may think that a woodpecker is hardly more than an ordinary bird. However, the woodpecker is very specially constructed and in reality resembles a miniature jackhammer. It takes a lot of force to drill into concrete, and the jackhammer and the man operating it, especially the jackhammer, take a beating. How does the woodpecker ram his bill into a tree thousands of times a minute without breaking his beak and smashing his brains. And after all the work of drilling a hole into a tree, how does he manage to reach inside the tree and pull out the bugs for his lunch? But more important still, how do evolutionists explain how an ordinary bird could evolve into a woodpecker? First of all, a woodpecker must have a special kind of bill. It must be strong and sharp enough to dig into a tree without folding up like an accordion. A woodpecker also has to have a firm grip on the tree into which he is drilling. He does not perch on a limb. He has very stiff tail feathers, which he uses to brace himself against the tree, and specially designed feet with four claw-like toes. Two toes point upward, and two toes point backward or down, an arrangement which allows him to get a good, tight grip. What keeps the woodpecker's brain from rattling around in his skull while his head takes the awful battering necessary to drill a hole? His head is equipped with shock absorbers. These shock absorbers cushion the blows so that the skull and brain of the woodpecker suffer no damage. The most amazing thing about the woodpecker is his tongue. It must be very long because the woodpecker must be able to reach deep into the tree with his tongue in order to reach bugs and worms. To be able to snatch these insects, the tongue of the woodpecker is equipped with special glands that secrete a sticky substance. Thus, the bugs stick to his tongue just like flies to flypaper. 
the woodpecker pulls the insects from the tree which are stuck in the glue then pulls in his long tongue and scrapes the bugs off into his mouth what does a woodpecker do with such a long tongue he can't just roll it up and store it in his beak he might choke to death on it the creator has provided a very unique solution to a very unique problem the tongue of an ordinary bird is anchored in the back of the beak but this won't work for the woodpecker because his tongue is too long. Therefore, the tongue of the woodpecker is anchored in the right nostril. The tongue is actually in two halves. After it emerges from the right nostril, it splits into two halves. Each half passes over each side of the skull underneath the skin, comes around and up underneath the beak, and enters the beak through a hole in the beak. Here the two halves combine. Thus, when the woodpecker is not using his long tongue, he curls or rolls it up anchored to the right nostril. How could this special arrangement for the woodpecker's tongue have evolved if, in the beginning, as ordinary birds, his tongue was anchored in the back of the beak? How did it manage to move into the right nostril? If the anchor suddenly hopped from the back of the beak up into the right nostril, the tongue would be too short. On the other hand, would it slowly migrate from the back of the beak up into the right nostril? And during all of the intermediate stages, would the tongue have been long enough to reach the bugs inside the tree so the woodpecker could eat and survive? Supposing a bird developed a long tongue anchored to the right nostril, but he did not develop a strong, sharp beak or the powerful neck muscles, the shock absorbers, and the special toes and claws, what possible use could such a bird make of the long tongue without the other apparatus employed by the woodpecker? On the other hand, suppose a bird developed all that special apparatus needed to drill a hole into a tree, but not the long tongue. He would spend all day drilling a hole in a tree in anticipation of a meal of insects, but after all the hard work, he would not be able to reach the bugs or worms. Again, you see, nothing works until everything works. The woodpecker did not and could not have evolved. Only God creates a woodpecker. Psalms 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. God proof number 289. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then chapter 2, 1 and 2, and 9 and 10. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereon, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord uh, spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. In the God said, man said, jot and tittle series, you'll find several proofs concerning Jonah in the whale. Following are several additional proofs, again unearthed by David Don, uh, Down excuse me, in his book, Unveiling the Kings of Israel. Most whales have small throats, unable to swallow anything as large as a man, but there is a known incident, incident when this happened. 
It was reported in several newspapers. We quoted from the Indian Sunday Statesman, May 25, 1953. One of the most miraculous escapes from death and an experience almost unique in the world history befell a seaman, befell a seaman named James Bartley one February day in 1891. Bartley was a seaman on the American Whaler Star of the East. On this particular day, the Star of the East was battling against a storm in the Antarctic Sea. Then the lookout man spotted a whale, and despite the rough weather, all the hands were quickly at work. Soon the deadly harpoon found its mark. Then followed the inevitable battle when the great creature which dived deeply and twisted and turned to throw off the stinging thing in its back. As suddenly as it started, the struggle ended, and the crew saw that their catch was indeed a mighty sperm whale. The engines were stopped, and the boats were lowered to bring the whale to the ship's side. In one of the boats was James Bartley, an experienced sailor. Approaching the creature's tail, Bartley was about to attach his coiled rope to it when the whale shivered. Its tail flashed, and in a split second, Bartley's boat had been flung high into the air. Both he and his mates were tossed into the boiling seas. The sudden and unexpected return to life of the whale took all by surprise, for it had seemed quite dead. But such things had happened before, and the whaler's mate was already standing on the deck with his rifle at the ready. Two shots cracked out as he fired, and the whale, hit at a vital spot, reared up from the water, opened its mighty jaws in the last quiver of death, then momentarily disappeared beneath the churning waters. In seconds, it reappeared quite dead. Then the skipper re uh, remembered Bartley. The second boat was ordered to search for the two men, but there was no sign of them. Giving them up as dead, the skipper had the whale roped and hauled on board, then began the laborious task of cutting it up. Unexpectedly, one of the men on this job let out a cry and began to hack furiously at the belly of the creature. There's something there in its belly, he shouted. Help me quickly. Others hastened to help, and there before their amazed eyes was the unconscious figure of James Bartley. Stripped, massaged, and swathed in blankets in a warm cabin, Bartley soon recovered to tell his tale to his awestruck mates. Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, who ruled from 793 to 753 B.C. He was told to go to Nineveh and cry out against it for their wickedness. Jonah had no doubt heard about what the Assyrians did to people they did not like, and he figured that sort of message he was commissioned to proclaim would not be a very popular message. He would probably finish up by being impaled or skinned alive. Not relishing such a prospect, he took off in the opposite direction and paid his passage to Joppa, now a suburb of Tel Aviv, on a boat that was headed for Tarshish in Spain. It was on this journey that a tempestuous storm arose, and Jonah was flung into the sea and swallowed by this big fish. When the fish spat him out on the Phoenician beach, there is a beach in Lebanon today fronting water called Jonah's Bay. It was then that Jonah decided to go quietly and set out for Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. To Jonah's surprise, the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed the fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and it caused it to be proclaimed, let everyone turn from his evil way, Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. The Assyrian king at this time was Adad-Narari III, 
who ruled from 810 to 782 B.C., it so happens that a religious revival took place under this king. The beautiful book is the glorious and the inerrantly accurate history of all things it concerns itself with. Everything I'll ever need to know concerning this life and how to live it, and everything I'll ever need to know concerning eternal life and how to attain it, is contained between the covers of God's holy Bible. Really, everything depends on it. Everything. I need to know it is true and righteous altogether, and it is. God said, Daniel 9, verse 24, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. God said, Job 12, verse 7, But ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. God said, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Man said, The Bible is not the absolute truth, because there is no absolute truth. Everybody knows that. Buzz off, Bible thumpers. Now you have the record.